right, uh, let's pray. Let's pray for the word that the Lord is going to release today. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that in your glorious wisdom and in your manifold power, Lord God, you are visiting us, Lord God, here in this church. You are doing a work to glorify your own name. And you are using every one of us, Lord God, to be a, to be a channel, to be a conduit of the power of the living God. And I just pray upon every one of us right now, both on-site and online, Lord God. Father, I pray that resurrection power will come upon every one of us, Lord God. That you will bring dead things to life and you will cause us to be knit into a new family of faith. So Lord, may you take over on this morning. May I decrease, may we all decrease, but may you increase to the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Alright, I'm really excited. We are in our study in uh, the book of Acts. And here we are. So I was tapping my phone. I should be tapping the iPad. Okay, um, here we are, right? We're in our study from the book of Acts. And I just want to say this before I even take another step further. The worship today, hearing all your voices, was glorious. It was glorious to hear the voices of all of you praising God the Father. And I just want to say this so that in this church we get it straight. Worship is not about the fancy things happening here. And as you can see, there's not a lot happening here that's very fancy. It's intentional. It's intentional. Worship is not about... It's not... Worship is about the voices of the people all singing together in praise of the Father. And today... I want you to know this, that what was great about today's worship was not so much that it was led well here. What happens here is a trigger. What happens here is a, is a catalyst so that something happens in your midst. And what happened in your midst? When I stopped singing and I heard and listened to your voices, it's as if I could hear the song of the redeemed people of God all singing in a chorus of praise and of glorying to the Lord Jesus Christ so that it's not about the, how loud all of us are here. Ali, I don't think we want to be so loud. I think we want this to be loud, not this to be loud. And when this is loud, then all of us are knit together. Our voices come together to become part of a new thing a body of Christ, a body of Christ. Today I want to share with you about the incredible things that's happening to God's people in book of Acts, at the end of Acts chapter 2, where God births His people into a family. Now you must understand this. God's people do not always understand how to be a family. It was not so long ago before the book of Acts that two of the brothers, John and James, were jostling for position and prestige among the disciples, declaring among themselves, and how many times had they, on their walking with Jesus, started bickering among themselves about who was the greatest. We don't always know what it means to be the family of God. And then everything happens to tear down all their greatest hopes, all their greatest ambitions to be 
in positions of high power, high rank and prestige in this new government of God. And God tears the whole thing down with the death of Jesus on the cross. And their hopes of an earthly kingdom shattered. And then three days later, He is raised to life and He is revealing to them that, are you going to soon restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this now in your resurrected form going to establish an earthly kingdom? And maybe in James and John's minds, malu siket because they are remembering how much they wanted to jostle themselves into positions of prestige in that earthly kingdom. And Jesus says, I will. What does He say? He says, but you will receive power, right? I remember, I remember this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And in this context, He starts taking these people and He starts turning them away from just being a bunch of ragtag followers of Jesus who sometimes tried to out outdo each other, He turns them into a family of faith. And I just want to impress upon you that it's not obvious that what the family of faith should look like. It should be obvious because if you are a believer in, in, in the Jewish scriptures, your mind should go back all the way to the Levitical law, to the Mosaic law, when people, when the nation of Israel began as a family and there were, there were tribes within a larger family and they were supposed and called by their law to look after each other. They were called every seven years to forgive debts, to set that to, to, to set uh, uh, um, captives free, so to speak. And now, after centuries, literally millennia have passed, and here they are, on the cusp of something new. And God is saying, remember that old family that I wanted to create. I'm going to birth this family from among you. I'm going to take you guys and I'm going to show you a new way to live. Now, when we think of the Old Testament, or when we think of the New Testament, the early church, when we think of the early church, how do you imagine them to be like? Close your eyes right now. What does the early church look like? What does it look like? Is it a lot of beige, a lot of brown, a lot of dust, right? And maybe it's because, you know, um, in our minds, the early church is made out of old men with halos around their heads, you know, and all of them uh, perpetually looking forward, you know, and, and that's what they look like, right? Maybe that's, the, these, are, these are orthodox, Eastern Orthodox um, uh, icons, right? Or maybe, maybe sometimes uh, they do. They don't. Maybe sometimes they do turn around and look at each other, you know. But the halos are all intact, you know. Um, uh, the, the twelve apostles, by the way, if you counted it out, you know, I'm I'm guessing not Judas. I'm guessing Matthias. So this is post Acts two, okay? Um, and often they would meet in public, right? They did not have churches, air conditioned, you know, and with like. Fancy lights like this, you know. Are these fancy lights? I don't know if they're fancy lights. They're fancy enough, right? Compared to this, right? Uh, this is daylight, right? In broad daylight, they would gather, you know, with a crowd of people around them. No, none of this. It's, it's, you got to speak like this, okay? Peter's got to throw his voice across uh, um, in public space. Not, by the way, 
Preachers were doing this all the way until the 18th century, uh, and it's only uh, 19, 20, until the 19th century. Only in the 20th century uh, did, did preachers have the luxury of a microphone, and we could, you know, whisper powerful points like this, right? And we couldn't do it. We couldn't do it otherwise, right? Now, it wasn't always so orderly. Of course, paintings can only attempt to capture what first century church looks like. Um, often it might be a little bit more chaotic with the preacher trying to make his point and people milling about, people walking up and down. This is a scene likely of Paul in Ephesus as he's preaching. People are bringing out um, their books on sorcery and witchcraft and spells and bring out their charms and burning them right there in the city. Of course, we know it was a much bigger bonfire than that. It's a painting to illustrate um, the point, right? But I show you this picture to show you that, that, that sometimes when a preacher is preaching in the New Testament, it can be chaotic, it can be rowdy, it can be messy. And to a large extent, church can be chaotic and rowdy and messy. And sometimes it can be downright frightening because whenever they weren't in public preaching and being like that, they were sometimes, especially during Nero's rule, captured and persecuted and tortured and thrown into dens with lions, wild beasts, wild dogs, baying for blood, hungry Abused, tortured animals, and then and then thrown thrown into into a, into an arena with Christians, right? Now I wanna I wanna show you, I I'll talk this through with you a little bit, okay? If you look at this little crowd here, there are women and children as well, okay? There's a little child here, you know, and uh, and all these pillars, some of them are charred black, some of them have fire at the bottom. Nero used to use Christians. As his, as his fire torches to light up his nighttime dinner parties. So Nero would have Christians strapped onto, onto beams all around his garden. He had a huge palatial grounds, right? He would, he would have them lining all along his, his parties and he would set them on fire. And that, that would be the illuminated, that, that's his party, that's his Christmas lights, right? Um, uh, the Emperor Nero. And Christians, um, f uh, generations ago, had to die for their faith. Today, we live a much more comfortable life as Christians. I sometimes worry we are too comfortable. But that's a pastor's worry. Maybe it shouldn't be just the pastor's worry. Um, uh, often, it wasn't just men, as I was sharing with you. Um, uh, women... Um, are also often part of, part of this. And whenever they weren't being killed in arenas, they were thrown into prisons. This is one of my favourites, Rembrandt, okay? And this is a, a, a couple of Rembrandt paintings. The one on the left is Peter. The one on the right is Paul. You know it's Paul uh, because he's got the scrolls. He's writing the New Testament. You know it's Peter because of the keys. These are not keys to his prison doors. Um, that's symbolic of the, I give you the keys to the kingdom. I give you the keys to the kingdom and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, right? And so often, uh, many, many Christians would be in the first century, in the early church, would be thrown into prison. And prisons were dim and dark and they were fed very meager rations, a little bit like today, except that, uh, except that they were probably rats and... Uh, all kinds of other horrendous, creepy crawlies um, in there. Now, whenever they weren't thrown into prison and weren't intimidated, 
or in spite of being intimidated, they would continue to be out in the streets doing acts of charity. And the early church would be down on the streets, cleaning the lepers, healing the sick, uh, uh, um, providing medical aid uh, um, to people. This is just some of the kinds of things that the early church would have been signatured for, for doing, right? The role they played in healthcare, in, in caring for, for the aged, for the sick, and, and so on. This is normal. And whenever they weren't out on the streets, Often, they would be hiding around in small indoor spaces, teaching, praying, fellowshipping. This is a picture of what early church would have looked like. There's a man standing with a scroll, reading probably a letter from Paul. This wouldn't be Romans, because we know that Romans was read out loud to the Roman church by Phoebe, a woman, you know, but, but this might have been Galatians, for example, you know, and they would be listening attentively in firelight, um, maybe like this, if you could have more people gathered, and you can see outside it is night time. You can see the church gathering in, in caverns, gathering in homes uh, um, by firelight, and reading, this girl is really ex- this girl is really excited. She's one of those girls at the front row. Goes, "Amen, preach it!" Right? That's her. Right? Um, and and one of the one of the features of the church when they gathered was that they supped together. They would gather in homes. They would break bread together. You know, and one of the things that was very dissatisfying as I crawled like a proper spider around the web uh, to, to look for these f- paintings, is that most of the time, um, the paintings will show the believers um, looking extremely white and, and middle class and proper and clean, you know, and, uh, and, and eventually I found, I, I found this and I liked it very much. I liked it very much. It's a lot more of a modern type of, uh, of uh, expression of what, what breaking bread in the early church would have looked like. I like it because it shows the diversity. It shows all kinds of people gathered around the table. And I believe this is the POV of Jesus. Yeah? He's, uh, he's, he's conducting the, the communion. Now, this is some of the visuals that can just help us to tap into what things were like as we go into our Bibles, Acts chapter 2. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, you're going to see a picture of the church. And then you're going to read on after that to Acts chapter 3, and then the rest of Acts chapter 4. And at the end of Acts chapter 4, you're going to see another very startlingly similar passage about the church. And so I want to show you, you don't have to read, I'm just showing you these two, okay? End of chapter 2, end of chapter 4, very, very similar. Short little paragraph describing the church, okay? I'm going to show you. What's at the end of Acts chapter 2? It goes like this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had needed. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Now, when Paul, not Paul, when Luke writes this, it gives you a picture of what the early church was like. They gathered in homes, Whenever they gathered, they fellowshiped, they broke bread, they attended to the apostles' teaching, and they prayed. And then through this, signs, wonders took place. And then through the signs and wonders, then they started to give generously and meet each other's needs. Technically, Luke has done his job. He has described. So if Acts of the Apostles is Luke just trying to give you the necessary information to reconstruct what the church was like, he has done his job. But... Later, in Acts chapter 4, he sees it necessary to do it again. He tells the same story again. Let me show you um, Acts, Acts chapter 4, Fergus, 4. This should be 4, okay? Um, Isabel, Papa did it again, right? Uh, didn't correct his slides properly. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field, belonged to him, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Two texts. So similar in nature. I'm showing you here the similarities. In Beige, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done. In Beige here, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. In Orange, the parallel, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Here, now the full number of those who, were, who believed were of one heart and one soul. And then in Blue, and they were selling their possessions, belongings, distributing the proceeds to all. There was not a needy person among them. As many as were owners of lands and houses, they sold them and distributed the money to each other as there was need. It's amazing. Why? Why does Luke repeat himself? Tell the same story again. It's because he wants to show all of us that this is not a one-off. This is not something that just happened but he wants to show you the church is like this. And then he goes on to tell other stories. Stories of signs, stories of wonder, stories of the church coming together, stories of people suffering, and then he tells the same story again. He does this once to bookend, so that you understand that later, even when he doesn't retell this story again, the church continues to be like this and like this and like this. He is doing it to show us that this is the pattern of what church should be like. 
Acts 2. What should it be like? They devoted themselves to one, the apostles' teaching. Two, to the fellowship. Three, to the breaking of bread. Four, to prayers. Teaching, fellowship, communion, prayer. These are the four things that the church should be known for. These are the things that I want our church to be known for. So, when you talk about teaching, the Word has to reshape me. The Word has to reshape us. I say reshape. I don't just say shape us. Because I don't want you to assume that you are shapeless and formless. We are all shaped according to the pattern of your upbringing and whatever the world uh, uh, is kind of like squeezing and pressuring upon you, we are all already coming before the Lord with a particular shape. And sometimes our shapes are stubborn and hardened and sometimes our shape is are very malleable. But the Lord comes and He says in Romans 12 verse 1 and 2 that do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but to be transformed. Be transformed. So we want to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit shaping us, reshaping us. The teaching of God, the apostles' teaching must reshape us. Fellowship. The church walks with me. I don't walk alone. I say this all the time here, there are no lone wolves. I say this all the time here, there are no lost pixels floating about in space. Every one of us connected to someone else, connected to a body so that all the pixels come together to form a beautiful mosaic of God's glorious church. That's what church is about. Communion. That whenever we gather, we remember. We remember His death, we remember His resurrection so that the death and resurrection of Jesus are central. They are absolutely central to the way we do church, to the way we worship, to the way we love one another. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, if all you have are all the other things, they become unhinged in something that is enduring and true and powerful. But it's because of this that everything else has meaning. And finally, prayer. That we are people who become the place where heaven and earth can transact. Transact through us so that the area, the place that we occupy becomes a place of power, of influence and intersection. Teaching, the Word, must reshape me. Now, you may have heard similar things to this as you were growing up, you know, um, maybe in Sunday school, maybe in your homes, maybe in a song. I know the song goes, read your Bible, pray every day, right? Okay, um, I know the song goes that way. Um, uh, um, but we are often told, read your Bible and obey it. Okay, read your Bible, obey what it says. Um, it's important for us to obey the Bi what the Bible says. It's important for us to read our Bibles. But I think we're all older and we are all interfacing with more complex realities. And I want to suggest to you that this is too simplistic. Because the old joke goes, you can simply flip your Bible, you know, uh, and God, I'm going to obey the first thing I see in the Bible. Bang! And Judas found a tree and hanged himself. And said, God, I'm going to try again. I'm going to try again, okay? Okay? Bang! Go and do likewise. <laughs> you, don't want, you, don't, you don't want to follow lame jokes, right? The Bible describes a lot of things. The Bible doesn't always... The Bible is not always wearing the prescription hat. 
Sometimes the Bible is wearing the description hat. When the Bible talks about Judas hanging himself, it is describing something. It's not prescribing something. We need to educate ourselves and know our way around our Bible so that we don't start acting on descriptions. We act upon the prescriptions of God, upon His instructions to us. So when God says, go and make disciples of all nations, He's not just describing it, uh, what's happening there. He's telling you what to do. It's plain, it's obvious, but sometimes it's not so obvious and we need to be good stewards of the Word of God. Do you know your way around your Bible? I didn't grab this from the internet. This is my Bible. <laughs> this is my Bible. And I thought that maybe nobody's ever shown you what it could look like for you to, to, to really work with your Bible, you know, to read a passage, to circle words, to, to, to find connections, uh, um, to write notes on the margins, and to really engage it. I say over our Instagram reels all the time, if you want to learn it and love it, come. Because that's what we want to do. We want to kindle a love for the Scriptures. We want to kindle a learning, a rich learning of the Scriptures. Do you know your way around your Bible? This is something that's been on my heart. It's been burning in my heart uh, uh, um, of late. Um, is, is our Bible literacy. Do you know your way around your Bible? And I was talking to Athalia about this uh, over the week. And we were thinking about, we were just asking ourselves, actually, how, how Bible literate is our church? How Bible literate is any church in the 21st century? Right? Never mind. Don't worry about everyone else. How Bible literate are we? Right? Um, and, I've got, and I've got a little test. It's my own test to know whether you're proficient. Okay, you can be a beginner, and that's okay if you are beginning, right? Um, and, and you know a Bible verse here or two. You remember this thing or that thing, and that's okay. If you are starting, please start that way, and then keep kicking on. Keep kicking on, yeah? Um, you may be intermediate. You have encountered a few things. You kind of know the Jesus story. You know, you kind of know some teachings and you've, you, you've, you can recognize Psalm 23, maybe. You know, you're, you're kind of intermediate. You're getting somewhere. But I want to tell you what proficiency looks like from your pastor. Okay? There's not a hardened rule. There's not a law of God. There's what I consider proficiency. Three things. Number one, uh, you can map your way around your Bible. It's from the largest to the most, to the smallest, okay? Number one, proficiency is like this. When you can map yourself around the Bible, if I drop you into any part of the Bible, you roughly know where this sits. You know, not roughly know, you know where this sits in the big story of God. If you pull open to Daniel chapter 1, you know where Daniel chapter 1 is. You know historically what's happening. You know where the people of God are. You know, what, what's, you know what enemies they are facing. You know what situation they are in. You know where Jesus is in relationship uh, 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 to that, right? You can map your way around it. You've got a big picture of what is happening where. Anyway, I can drop you anywhere in the Bible and you can work your way around it. It's like, it's like dropping you in a, in a new city. Can you find your way? Do you know where you are? Where the river is? Where the clock tower is? You know where the shopping mall is? If you know, that's one of the signs you're proficient with your Bible, okay? Second test. We're zooming in a little tighter, okay? 
you're proficient with your Bible when a Bible passage prompts you to remember other similar or other contrasting Bible passages. So when you hear the Scriptures, you're not just hearing that Scripture, but because you've touched other parts of Scripture, it's bringing memories. Something is triggering, something is toggling, something is prompting you such that when you hear about, say, Daniel again, right? Daniel being brought out of his home, you know, and dropped in Babylon, which is a foreign land, you know, and somehow in Babylon, he manages young men, you know, uh, um, holy, wise, beyond his years, more schooled than anyone else uh, in this foreign land, and he rises up to a position of high power, power to an influence until he is almost like the advisor to the king. This should trigger memories of something else. Test. Who, what does it trigger you to remember? Joseph. It should remind you of Joseph, another young boy also brought out of his home, thrown into a Babylon-like place, which is Egypt, and also rising through the ranks in wisdom, more intelligent, more, more, more wise, more learned than all the other people there, and rising until almost at the rank of advisor to the king. And then you can say, Joseph. Daniel is a form of Joseph. And then you can... Now, that to me, when you can handle scriptures like that, Okay, this is just an example. Okay, it could be a Bible verse cross-referencing to another Bible verse. When you can see connections in your scriptures like that, I know you're on your way to being proficient. Third one, you can dissect a text. Small text, you can pick it apart, you can find its meaning. You can do very micro work, right? The, this is not, now, now we've gone from big mapping to medium-sized connect, connections to close analysis, right? You can take one text, one line, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord, which word of, uh, it, it, actually it's the word Yahweh. Yahweh is my Lord. So it's not just the Lord, it's Yahweh, my God. is my shepherd. Why is he my shepherd? He's my shepherd because a shepherd loves his sheep. What else is, are the attributes of a shepherd? And you can go on and you can go in and dissect and go into the word, go into the text and understand, draw meaning and understand what it's trying to say. All three of these are needed before you can say now for me along the way right all three of these are signs that you are becoming proficient in your Bible you know your way around the word and why do I say this is important because when we look at the book of Acts you're going to see fishermen who for all intents and purposes in our minds we think of maybe modern-day fishermen, okay, Bootate or something like that. We have all these prejudices that we bring about with, with, with people who ply trades. And we say, can't be, la. these guys know, they're, they're not scholars, right? No. Did you know that the moment the people were breaking out in tongues at Pentecost, you all remember this? When people, the crowd started accusing them like, ah, you're drunk, la. that's why they're making all this noise, right? And of course, Peter says what? Joel 2. Don't you know Joel 2? This is Joel 2. And I'll tell you something about the resurrection, Psalm 16. And I'll tell you one other thing about the resurrection, Psalm 110. And on the spot, these fishermen are like, they, are, they know their way around this, their scriptures. And then later, later, after they, they are being 
caught and tried for healing people on the Sabbath and all these kind of things. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are mocking them from afar. But one thing's for sure, it says in the scripture that they saw that they were uneducated men, but they had been with the Lord. Now, I think that being able to pull up Joel 2 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 is fairly good education. Okay, I think most of us will not be able to do it on the fly. But I think that when the scribes and the Pharisees looked at them as uneducated men, they weren't schooled to the level that they themselves were. And yet, they were with Jesus. And because they were with Jesus, they knew their way around the Jesus Scriptures. And they could see, their spiritual eyes to see, church, have you been with Jesus? And do you know your way around your scriptures? Read your Bible. I'm going to create a little bit of gap here because it's got some missing space. Read your Bible. Understand what it says. Know what your Bible asks of you. And then obey what it says. Obey what it asks of you. Bible literacy is very important. And as we come to church, attending faithfully, steadfastly to the apostles' teaching is one of those things that I am committing to you. We will always do that here at this pulpit. And if there is enough hunger, we will open up more sessions to do other discipling things because we're just dying to. We just know that if we keep calling your in, nobody will show up and everybody will say like, so busy this church, every day got something, right? And so if, if there is hunger, Taylor and I, Pastor Ramesh and Denise will be the first people to open the doors and say, come, come in, we'll teach. We'll teach one hour, we'll teach two hours. We'll just keep going, right? If you're wanted, okay? Fellowship. First one is teaching Second one is fellowship. The church walks with me. This is important, church. We think, we confuse fellowship with friendship. If I ask you now, turn to your neighbour and say, what's the difference between fellowship and friendship? Can you attempt, right? No, I don't want you to do that, okay? Don't worry, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. We confuse fellowship with friendship because friendship is optional. We choose our friends. We choose the friendships we have. We choose how frequently we see them. We choose um, who we maintain as friends. And we somehow, because no one ever helped us to understand what biblical fellowship is like, we think that fellowship and friendship is the same thing. I just go hang with my gang in church, you know, and that's fellowship. It's not. It's not the same thing. You're, you have your friends in church and that's cool. It's fine. But biblical fellowship is not the same thing. And it's not optional either. <laughs> making y'all make friends. No, I'm making y'all fellowship with one another. 1 John 1. This is the message we have heard from Him, that's Jesus, and declare to you now. God is light. You all agree? God is light? Sure, huh? God is light. And there is absolutely no darkness in Him. If we say... We have fellowship with God and yet we walk in darkness. We are lying, correct? You all agree with this? If we say, I fellowship with God, it means I fellowship with light. And so I cannot have fellowship with darkness, okay? Logical, what's it called? Syllopsism, is it? What? This is a logical flow, okay? Then it goes into the hard parts, verse 7. If we walk in light as He Himself is in the light, 
we have fellowship with one another. Correct? Or the nervous nods, like mm. logically, mm. <laughs> relationally, mm. <laughs> right? If we walk with God, we have fellowship with one another. And the outcome of this whole chain is that the power of the blood of the Son is activated over you. It cleanses you from all your sins. In other words, in other words, John is using salvation language to talk about the necessity for fellowship. I'm not going to go any further. If you are theologically minded, we can stop there. But John is using salvation language when he talks about the need for fellowship. This is hard. Fellowship with God, fellowship with light, fellowship with one another, and the power of the blood cleanses us from all our sins. In church, we are taught that we can pick and choose and you know, my gang, your gang, you know. This is a picture from our Christmas, our Christmas event upstairs here in the ground floor. And that was, this is pretty much most of us, most of us um, on that day. You see um, Malaysians, you see non-Malaysians, you see the elderly, you see the young, you see the rest of us, you know, you see men, women, it's all of us. Some of us in, in the serving tea, some of us in plain clothes. That's all of us. I get that view right now because when I stand back, I can see all of you and this looks very much like this, right? We are called by God to know one another. That's how He uses us. Uh, that's how He shapes us. That's how He grows us. That's how He reshapes us. When He brings iron to iron and He makes us gese, He makes us you know, crisscross and bang against one another, bang up against, rub up against one another. And through uh, uh, the friction, which is unavoidable, through the tension, which is also unavoidable, through all of these things, which we call part of Christian fellowship, He reshapes us to become one body. From individual parts, He reshapes us to become one body. We, church, are called to be one body. We are not called to be many individual parts. We are called to be far greater than the sum of our parts. When we become one body, then the kapala, the Jesus, the head, has his body on earth. And we become... I'll tell you something about church. There are many of you who would never make friends with other manys of you on a normal basis. Just join a cell group. It becomes very abundantly clear. Whenever I have been in cell groups and I look at the crowd of people in the cell group, there will definitely be a handful. People, I will say that under normal circumstances, I make friends with people like this. And then there'll be others 
who say that, gosh, we like different music, we like different shows, we read different things, some don't read, some don't watch, some don't this, and we're like, we're, we're like so different. I would, great people, I would never have been friends with them because we have no po- common points of, 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 of connection. Under normal circumstances, I may never have been their friends. Right? Look around you. You will see people whom you naturally click with, you will see people whom you would have to unnaturally click with. That's fellowship, that's biblical fellowship. Because he says, I'm going to bring all of you together so that when you are not like each other, you strengthen each other. You grow each other. Look, if you just gather in your own little like-minded communes, you have your own echo chambers. That's the problem of 21st century internet. Echo chambers. Everybody gathering and algorithms don't help because if you're online and you're in this scene and you're only following these things and you're liking all those posts and you're reading all those channels and then the algorithm's going to keep feeding you more stuff of like-minded people to you and all you're going to get is when you're angry with the enemy, you're just going to get really angry together. And when you, there are things that you elevate and exalt and, and, and venerate, then you're going to venerate it together. And, then you, and then all, most of the time, when we exist in our little echo chambers, we lose perspective of what's happening outside and we also start demonizing people who don't share the same views as us. And God has built in into the church, into biblical fellowship, the tearing down of, of our natural inclinations to, to suck ourselves into our little ghettos where we, where we eat, sleep, drink, pray, read the Bible with the same lens with us, the people who share exactly the same thoughts as us. But no, he breaks that up and he puts us in a church with diverse people and he says, fellowship with one another. This is tantamount to your salvation. Why? Because he wants us to rub up against each other with different views, different thoughts, different backgrounds. And when you do that, your empathy must grow. Your love for one another must grow. You don't just learn to love people who agree with you, who vote like you, who are just like you. You learn to love those who are not like you as well. And when, he, when you do that, you become more Christ-like because King Jesus loved those who were so different from him so different from him. This different from him. Can we learn to love each other in fellowship? If you're not in a cell group, start thinking about it. I'm not here to sell cell groups. I'm here to tell you fellowship is extremely important. Teaching, fellowship, communion, then prayer. I meant to pray somewhere in the middle. Let me pray right now. Short one, okay? Short prayer. Father, we know that in church, it's not always easy to love one another. Father, we know that, that extroverts can flutter around like butterflies and it seems so easy for extroverts to come to church and make friends. But maybe for me, it's different. Maybe I don't like to come out of my shell. Father, I know that for introverts, it's... It feels like they can make really, form really deep friendships. Um, um, and for me, it's hard. I, I, I prefer to just, to, to just touch and go. Teach me to deepen my friendships and my fellowship. Lord Jesus, help me and help us as a gathering of your people.
to learn to love each other in ways that we would not normally love one another. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes about the communion. He says, Whoever eats the bread, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body. If you are online, by the way, we're going to be partaking of communion very soon. So I want to encourage you to go and get your emblems. For the rest of us, we're going to be taking communion right here in the middle of sermon, okay? So, 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 so it's going to be a bit different today. Because this point is on communion, so we can't, we can't wait till the end. We've got, we, we got to do it properly. <laughs> Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and against the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. So communion, gathering, breaking of bread is not just about eating bread. It's not just about eating food. It's not just about checking off your daily meal. It's not about, it's not about entertaining each other. Don't worry about the kids. They'll, they'll, they'll be okay. Yeah. No running around, kids. Okay? Now, church, the communion emblems are there. Don't worry about them. They're just going to stand there with it. Okay? When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we examine ourselves. We search. We ask the Lord, Lord, search me. Search me. Search and see if there's anything in me that is not right. And in communion, Jesus' death and resurrection, I'm sorry, it's too long. I'm just going to put D and R, okay? When we partake of communion, Jesus' death and resurrection become central to our worship in church. We remember His death which saves us. We remember His resurrection, which gives us power. When we partake of communion, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. We remember Jesus. We remember the blood shed. We remember the cup, the blood spilled, the body broken. Whenever we partake of communion, it is a form of renewal of covenant. Earlier, across the end of last year, start of this year, um, at least for me, I don't know about other pastors, a lot of renewal of vows because a lot of people got married um, with very little celebration uh, during COVID. So a lot of my friends are renewing their vows with a crowd like this. Communion is like renewing your vows. Every time you gather, you're renewing your covenant with the Lord. You're saying, yes, Lord, I'm yours, forever yours. Amen? And communion is being joined together to become one body. Uh, one of the most powerful um, preambles to a communion I ever had, someone took the wafer and he showed how it was broken. It was a piece and there were other parts. And he said that all of these pieces, actually it was bread. They had a loaf of bread in the church. I was in Australia. Um, all, of the, all of your little pieces came from one big loaf. That one loaf is now broken up into little pieces so that we are all holding that one piece. But we all came from one source. And then he said that Jesus' body was broken so that ours can be made whole. Jesus' body was broken so that we can become one. And there is a reversal for Jesus' sacrifice and death. We have life. In Jesus' body being broken, we have wholeness. Not just my own wholeness, but our collective wholeness. And I know a friend, Christian family, all adults now, when, whenever there is conflict among the siblings, when the father gathers them, he will make them all take communion. 
He says, if y'all don't, don't settle your problems, y'all can't take communion. Settle it among your, the sons and whoever. Settle it. If not, you can't take communion. Why? Because when you partake of communion, you are becoming one with each other. You can't, you're acknowledging that the bread I'm taking is from the same source as my brother across the hall or my sister sitting in the next row for me or whatever it is. Or in my friend's case, my siblings in the same living room but feuding with each other. Cannot. Can't, you, can't, you, can't take, you can't take communion if you're feuding with someone, a believer. You can't. So I want us to distribute the communion emblems and examine ourselves. I have believers with whom my friendship is not great anymore. For some of them, I try my best. Actually, I, I like to think I've tried my best. Sometimes we are in seasons where it's still not healable. And maybe we grieve these things. I know I grieve them. Athelia sees me grieving them. I want to take communion when I do take communion with my head held high to say to the Lord, Lord, I have done my best. And I want to forgive. And I want to be united in the same spirit and in the same flesh with these brothers and sisters. Thank you so much. I share this because in the month months to come, we want to take communion to the next level and make it more central. I'll talk about that in a moment. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread. And after He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you put your body to be broken for us so that we can be made whole. Examine us, Lord God. Forgive us of our sins. And in the days to come, help us to right our relationships with one another so that true Christian fellowship can be established in this house. Let us partake of this bread together. After supper had ended, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of a new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for the cup of salvation, the blood of Jesus that gives us freedom. We thank you that through this shedding of blood, we've all come to become one, to become whole, to become loved and precious in your sight. We thank you, Lord God, for this cup. Let us partake of it together. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. 
Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is the last time we're we are taking communion like this. It's the last time we're taking communion like this. We're, we're going to be done with this. Come and draw us. Let me give this one to you. Yeah. I tell you why. Starting April, we'll be doing communion over there. I call it the King's Table. Okay? We'll be taking communion. Okay, la, I need y'all to bring food, okay? I need y'all to bring food, okay? And we can't cater this every, Sunday, every, every month, okay? After service on the first... If you want to bring food, everyone turn to the back. Rachel is going to raise her hands. Rachel, can you raise your hands? Yeah, Rachel's our new staff, okay, in this church, okay? And Rachel's going to be in charge of administering this. If you want to bring food, go look for Rachel. Every first Sunday, we're doing the King's Table. Sermon will end like normal. And then we all go around there. There'll be food. Somehow or rather, we'll get a little piece of bread and a little cup little drink, right, for you, okay? Somehow, we haven't worked out those mechanics, we have one month, okay? And then we'll gather around the table and I'll administer communion there in front of, in front of the king's table. And after we've partaken of the bread and the cup, we'll give thanks for the food and we commune, we makan together. Sounds like, sounds, like a, sounds like a nice way to do church? I think it sounds like a nice way to do church. Teaching, fellowship, communion, and after close, we have gone over. You're going to look at the time. You're going to realize I've gone over, and I have gone over. I'll save prayer for another day. I'll save prayer for another day. You are going to see, you're going to see in the chapters to come that the Christians in Acts chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 are going to learn how to pray. Because it's not obvious that they immediately become Christians and they immediately know how to pray. You're going to see them learn how to pray. How do they pray? They're going to pray using the Hebrew Scriptures. You're going to see them praying the Psalms. But they're not just praying the Psalms the way they used to pray the Psalms. They're going to start praying the Psalms with Jesus as the centre of the one they're calling out to in the Psalms. That will come in the next few days. I'm done for here. Okay, I'm done for here. Um, let's, can I have the worship team on stage? Father, we thank you, Lord God, that we are your people. We are your people called to be believers, called to love you, called to love one another. And all of this can only take place because of the amazing, un unspeakable, so good is, was your work on the cross and in resurrection, Father, I give you praise and thanks. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord turn His face to shine upon you. And may the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His countenance toward you and give you shalom. And all of God's people say, Amen. Let's give God praise.